Hello, everybody. Welcome to BSing with Sean K. I'm your host, Sean Neese. Joining me today is Jeff Gillette. He is a longtime sound engineer, and he has worked with such famous acts as George Benson, T-Bone Burnett, and Sergio Mendez. Currently, he is producing an album with the legendary Joe Pesci. Jeff, it's great to have you on. Uh, glad to be here. So how did you first become involved in uh, the music industry? Well, first I was a musician, and uh, I got in a rock and roll band when I was at college. I went to the University of Notre Dame, and the band became so successful that we got a record deal uh, right out of college, and upon graduating, we all moved to Los Angeles to everyone's parents' total dismay. You're doing what after we spent how much on the college education? <laughs> anyway, um, so we went to L.A., this was uh, like in 1970, and it didn't really work out with the band. And after a couple of years, it kind of disbanded. And I decided that I wanted to stay in the music business, but maybe not as a musician, um, to maybe become a sound engineer. And so I went to the engineer that had done our record out there and asked him how would I get started in doing that. At the time, there really weren't any schools like there are now for it. And uh, he told me about a guy in Burbank that was getting ready to build a brand new studio. And I had sort of learned how to be a carpenter when things had gotten slow with our band. Um, we did some little construction projects around the valley. The lead guitar player was actually an architecture major, so he kind of knew how to build stuff. Anyway... I went over and I met this guy and told him that I wanted to become a sound engineer and, and that I also uh, knew carpentry and how about if uh, he put me on the crew to build the studio and when it was finished that I would stay on and be trained to be an engineer. And so that's exactly what happened. I spent the next eight months with a hammer in my hand and then one day the studio was finished, and one of the first clients to walk in the door was Stevie Wonder. And he, uh, he put a tape on and listened to it. He, he liked the, the way it sounded in there. And so my apprenticeship was a year with Stevie Wonder. Um, and that was uh, during the record called Songs in the Key of Life. And then from then on, I ended up becoming the house engineer, and that studio became the hottest studio in town. Over the next five years, I was the chief engineer and got to work with everybody from uh, George Harrison to David Bowie to Mick Jagger and Stephen Eady, Billy Preston, you name it. Everybody came through there and including uh, Sergio Mendez, who uh, uh, I ended up doing several records. Um, I started out as, as the second engineer, but then the next record he came back, and, uh, and I ended up being the first engineer. Um, at one point, um, Sergio asked me if I wanted to go on the road with him, and I had never done live sound before. And so he handed me a 20-page technical rider of his show. And the next thing you knew, I was in Brazil for a month. 
traveling with him. And that started my career as a live sound engineer as well as studio stuff. And then uh, that went on for 22 years, um, traveling the world with Sergio Mendez. The only problem was that I was always juggling between the studio work and the traveling. And I would always have to commit to the tours, you know, months in advance, you know, because of having to book airline tickets and so forth. And then I started losing out on the studio stuff, which actually was way more lucrative than going on the road, being paid by the hour. So eventually, I told Sergio I needed to take a break. And and then I kind of rebuilt the studio career up again. And uh, after a few years, I got a call from Russell Ferrante, who's the keyboard player for a band called the Yellow Jackets. Uh, jazz fusion group been around for 32 years and I had met Russ in the studio on several projects including one with a guitar player named Robin Ford who was in the original Yellow Jackets um, the Yellow Jackets were going through a personnel change and were wondering if I wanted to go out on tour with them so that was 16 years ago and I'm still touring with the Yellow Jackets. In fact, all day today I've been uh, been playing travel agent. I also do the tour managing as well as the uh, front of house mixing. So anyway, um, I'm still doing that, and uh, currently working on this record with uh, with Joe Pesci, as you mentioned. So, um, who would have been? Uh who, which artists have been like the greatest, like, uh, what has been your favorite experience? Like, who, which artists were your favorite to work with, like, and why, like, over the years? Well, that, that's a tough question. Um, I really enjoyed working with Sergio, um, who introduced me to a whole other world of, of Brazilian music. Um, and the Brazilians are very, very high-spirited people and their culture is so much involved with the music uh, they they literally live and breathe you know the samba and the the bossa nova is such a big part of their culture and uh, uh, I got to go to Brazil many times you know they they have the the big carnival once a year so most of the year, every Friday night, every town all over Brazil has a rehearsal because the, the carnival is actually a competition down there. And it becomes this huge party. Starts at midnight on Friday night and goes all night. And there's like, you know, 300 percussionists playing at the same time and a thousand dancers. And... It was just a whole new world being introduced to Brazil and Brazilian music. As a result, I ended up working with many of the famous Brazilian artists over the years. Um, I kind of became the LA Brazilian connection. <laughs> Anything that came from Brazil to Los Angeles, I seemed to get the call. So uh, I'd say that that was really, has been a high point in you know, getting to see the world all expenses paid, and uh, yeah, it's been a great ride. 
there's many artists that uh, I really enjoyed working with. I, I worked with a, uh, a saxophone player named Paul Winter. Have you ever heard of Paul Winter? Uh, I haven't. He's got a group called the Paul Winter Consort, and uh, he, he was very interesting um, to work with. He, he likes to play his saxophone in unusual places. Every Christmas or winter solstice, um, he puts on this incredible concert at the St. John Divine Cathedral in New York. And uh, he loves the sound of his, his saxophone in the cathedral. Along with the pipe organ in the cathedral, it's incredible. I went to it last year. But on this one record I did with him, which was actually a Brazilian-style record, and uh, he had found this place in the Grand Canyon that he really loved the way his horn sounded. And so we cut the tracks in L.A. in the studio, and then he wanted to go to the Grand Canyon to put on his sax part. So we did. We took uh, some A-track in those days, ADAT uh, tape machines, and... Um, and backpacked into the Grand Canyon with a generator to recharge the batteries that were running the equipment. And we put microphones all over the canyon and recorded Paul. And uh, it sounded like he was playing in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and then uh, um, a couple other highlights, I'd say. One of them was moving speakers around in the White House with Frank Sinatra. Mm. Um, when Reagan was the president, he was having the president of Brazil for dinner at the White House, and he thought that Sergio Mendes would be the perfect entertainment. So we got to go play at the White House. and So we were doing a sound check in the afternoon, and we had just finished, and the band had just left, and I was still there, it was just me and a Secret Service guy standing at the door, and I was cleaning things up on the stage. And all of a sudden, in walks Frank Sinatra, and he comes running in and all out of breath and, and said, uh, Oh, did I miss the sound check? I said, Oh, yeah. I said, They just left. He said, Hi, I'm Frank Sinatra. I'm head of entertainment for the White House. <laughs> like I didn't know who he was. <laughs> and... Apparently, Reagan had uh, invented a new appointed position titled Head of Entertainment for the White House and appointed Frank Sinatra. So anyway, he was disappointed that he, he had missed the sound check. He said, oh, I really wanted to see what it was going to sound like. And I said, well, I can put a CD on and, and put it through the system, and you can kind of get an idea of what it's going to sound like. And... Uh, so he said, that'd be great. And then so he and I went and sat where the two presidents would be sitting. And uh, there's something called front fill, which are these little satellite speakers along the front edge of the stage because the speaker stacks for the PA system are so far out to the sides that if you're sitting up in the front row in the middle, you don't really hear it. So we have these speakers called front fill. And he wanted to know, he said, do you have separate volume control over the front fill? And I said, yeah, I do. He said, can you bring that up a little bit? And I said, sure. And so I brought it up, and then he said, uh, can we move these speakers a little bit? 
I said, sure. So the next thing you know, here's me and Frank Sinatra on stage in the White House, moving speakers around. <laughs> <laughs> so that was definitely a high point. So uh, what can you say about how sound engineering has changed from uh, the time you started working in the field to the present? Well, it's completely changed. Um, you know, the digital revolution kind of changed everything. Not only technically, as far as what I needed to learn and to, and to keep up with it, um, it also completely changed the whole nature of the music business because, you know, with everybody downloading their music off the internet and purchasing it off the internet, all of a sudden there were no more record stores and there are very few today. So then it became very sketchy as to how the artist was really going to get paid. And, uh, you know, there's so much bootlegging going on, people making copies from their friends, and so n nobody gets paid anything when that happens. And so that changed everything. A lot of record companies went out of business, and there became fewer and fewer budgets, you know. In the old days, it was like... Uh, you know, big record budgets and, uh, you know, everybody working a lot, making a lot of money. And then it became less and less with the whole digital revolution. And and these days, unless you're like a huge name, you know, like uh, Michael Jackson or Whitney Houston, who are no longer with us anymore, but that caliber, um, most of the projects that I'm involved with seem to be self-financed. We call them vanity projects. And, uh, you know, it's just basically people paying for and uh, putting them out on their own and, uh, you know, trying to sell them as best they can through, you know, CD Baby, Amazon, iTunes, and so forth. And the other thing that really changed was technology progressed to the point where anybody could really afford to to have a home studio and so that became more and more people working from home and and recording at home and so that definitely uh, made a dent in my business as well although mixing wise is something that is a very personal thing and so some people will will do all the recording on their own but then they'll they'll call me to, to actually mix the record and still there's still a fair amount of recording being done, but not nearly as much as there used to be. So luckily, I have this other part of my career, which is um, touring, and and that doesn't change. People still like to go out and hear live music, you know. So you uh, you prefer do you prefer like the old ways with uh, analog and uh, ADAT, or do you think it's like improved the way it's done now, or? Oh, no, it's definitely not improved as far as the uh, sound quality is concerned. Now everybody's listening to compressed MP3s and think that's the way music sounds. And then you, you compare that to listening to vinyl, for example. It's just like day and night to me. Um, and actually, vinyl seems to be making a bit of a comeback. Um, a lot of people are putting out a, a vinyl version of their projects these days. Um, digital's gotten better over the years, you know, as far as 
the really high definition sampling rate that we record at now with 96K really sounds a lot better than it did originally. And uh, there are some incredible advantages to the digital technology. I use Pro Tools, which is kind of the state of the art, and it's pretty amazing. The editing capabilities and you know being able to tune vocals, um, which is something that I do a lot of. Um, I've come to find that I even listen to music differently. Um, I'm, I'm a lot more aware of out-of-tune vocals. And when I listen to old records, I really listen in a different way. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe they let that go by. And so there's a lot of wonderful things that are a real advantage of the current technology. And I think the two worlds are coming together a little bit more as far as analog and and digital. Um, people are combining, you know, they're using, for example, um, recording onto tape and then and then putting it into digital world. And the great thing about that is once you capture the sound of tape, if you put it into digital at that point, it still sounds like tape. And I just actually did a record project like that um, in Nashville, a kind of a country R&B record. And I walked into the studio and I saw a two-inch tape machine sitting over in the corner and I said, to the studio owner, I said, does that thing still work? And he said, yeah. And I said, do you still have tape for it? He said, yeah. I said, okay. And not only that, it was a two-inch 16-track heads, which is even cooler than 24 because it's, you know, sounds even bigger. And we recorded at 15 IPS on 16-track two-inch heads and and then I transferred it all into Pro Tools to do the editing and the mixing and some overdubbing. But when I went to mix it, it was like, wow. I remember when music used to sound like this. And it was just like day and night noticeably different. So it's kind of cool to be able to combine the two. Um, and sometimes even when we're mixing... Um, we'll actually use some analog pieces of equipment in conjunction with the Pro Tools. And uh, so that's happening more and more, combining the two. And I think, uh, I just hope that people continue to appreciate good sound because most of the kids today growing up don't really know what that is and, and probably don't really care about it. So uh, do you think auto-tuning, if, like, overused, like, obviously to fix one or two notes, like, is different, but, like, if overused can get rid of, like, uh, make the music less authentic in a way, like, if it's overused, like, a, if a singer really can't sing and their whole track is, like, auto-tuned? Or <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> some people are actually doing that on purpose as kind of an effect, uh, you know, I think Cher was the first one that used it like that, to really use it drastically. And now that's become a trick or an, or an effect. Uh, but yeah, there is a danger in, uh, in having it, you know, sound too perfect and too processed. But uh, I never just hit an auto-tune button. Um, I actually get into the DNA and manually 
only tune what's necessary. You know, I'll I'll get inside of one note and just you know tune part of it. So only only what's necessary, and that seems to really maintain the integrity of the performance um, if you use it properly. But yeah, you're right. It's a dangerous tool in the wrong hands. And uh, what can you say about uh, the project you're currently working on with Joe Pesci? Oh, it's uh, it's nothing but fun. Um, Joe Pesci's a great guy, and he's a really, really good singer and a really good guitar player. I had worked with him a couple years ago on a project with a singer named Little Jimmy Scott, who happens to be an old friend of Joe's. Joe heard Little Jimmy Scott when Joe was 17 years old in a club in Newark, New Jersey, and just fell in love with the guy and decided he wanted to learn how to sing like him. And he did. He sounds a lot like Little Jimmy Scott. In fact, he was also instrumental in putting the Four Seasons together with Frankie Valli, which is part of the Jersey Boys show. There's actually a character in that show that, that is Joe Pesci. So he really comes from music, and uh, we've been having a blast. We've got about seven songs recorded, and we probably need about five or six more, so uh, hopefully that's going to happen sometime this summer. And uh, is his personality in some of his films at all like his real-life personality? I mean, obviously he's probably not you know, hitting, like hitting people with bats or stabbing them with pens. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I called the studio the day before we went in, and I said, hey, we got Joe Pesci coming in tomorrow. Put away all the baseball bats. <laughs> and, uh, no, he's uh, he's a lot like what you see in the movies. I mean, mm. uh, you know, he's uh, he doesn't mince words. Let, let's put it that way. He doesn't need to, you know, and he tells it like it is. And, you know, he doesn't need to make a record to make money. He's only doing it because he loves doing it. He loves to sing. And so he's going to do it the way he wants to do it. Anyway, so, yeah, he's a great guy. Really, really funny. And, uh, you know, my cousin Vinny. And, uh... So what's like the process like with him uh, working out the songs and everything? Like, how do they? Well, um, we were actually using some some existing tracks from the Jimmy Scott project. There were some alternate takes with various musicians, and they were really sort of designed for Jimmy Scott, who's got this really high voice. So some of them worked for Joe. Some of them were a little too high. But um, those tracks were recorded all over the world. Some of it was done in Los Angeles. Some of it was done in Germany. Some of it was done um, in New York. And ultimately, it ended up with the Prague Symphony Orchestra on it. So uh, it was a very international project. And so then these tracks were offered to Joe Pesci by the producer of the Jimmy Scott record. And so... Some of them worked, and some of them were a little too high. But uh, so the next, the next part of the process is that he already knows the songs he wants to do, and he already knows the musicians he wants to use. And so it's just a matter of 
putting everybody together, which is always a good trick with musicians of this caliber. He wants to use a piano player in New York named Kenny Barron and a guitar player lives in Philadelphia named Pat Martino. And a bass player who lives in Los Angeles, his name is Christian McBride. And we're not sure about the drummer yet, but anyway, um, trying to put these guys all together at the same time is, uh, is a real challenge. But we're working on it. Uh, Pesci actually has a house at the Jersey Shore, and he, he comes here every summer, so we've been talking about possibly uh, trying to get in the studio maybe in New York and cut some new tracks. So uh, what is the most uh, difficult part of recording an album? I think the most difficult part of recording an album is keeping a spontaneous feeling in the studio so that the technical aspect of recording it doesn't get in the way of the music and of the creativity and the performance. So that's what I learned many years ago was to was to have the whole technical thing be as much in the background as possible so it wasn't really noticed. Uh, an example being, I sort of became known for getting a drum sound really fast. Um, and a lot of that, I think, had to do with also, you know, doing live sound. You know, you don't have all day to get the sound right. So I kind of took some of the skills from from that into the studio. And so the musicians are sitting around waiting for hours while some engineer gets a drum sound. So that was kind of my, uh, my my philosophy on recording in the studio was to do it fast and have everything ready to go and then just uh, basically stay out of the way and let the music happen, you know? And then it's a matter of making sure that everybody is hearing what they need to hear properly because these days, you know, everybody puts headphones on and they're in different rooms. It's sometimes better if we can have everybody sort of separated and isolated and then we can manipulate the sound uh, and have more control later on. But consequently, everyone's wearing headphones and so a really critical part of doing a live recording session with a whole band is to really get a good headphone mix because what they're hearing in the headphones absolutely affects the way they play. And so, luckily having been a musician, uh, I was kind of aware of that. And so, I think that's really what it was all about, was just being aware of that and putting the headphones on myself and making sure the mix was really a good mix for everybody. Um, what gets kind of crazy these days now, they have little mixers, everybody has their own little mixer. And basically they can mix their own headphone mix. And I have found that that can be a little dangerous because um, I prefer it when everyone's listening to the same headphone mix and so that they can, they can really listen to each other. You start being able to mix your own and, and you end up only hearing yourself and and I found that sometimes that can be a detriment to the performance. So I generally don't like those kind of boxes, if and when I can. But, you know, some guys really like it. Um, I think they're dangerous. 
And then it's just a matter of signal-to-noise relationship and making sure you get everything uh, recorded. You don't want to, especially in digital domain, you don't want to be too soft because then you're going to have too much noise floor. And then you don't want to be too loud, otherwise you go into digital clipping, which is really ugly. Um, that was one thing with analog, was a lot more forgiving um, as far as, um, you know, saturating the tape. Um, if you saturate too much in digital, it gets real ugly, real fast. <laughs> and uh, which, uh, which uh, instrument is the most frustrating to record? Um, I think one of the hardest things is recording a, a singer. Um, just because there's, there's so much dynamics involved. And I like to actually have a fader on the microphone in my hand while they're singing and actually ride it into the recording. So that's always challenging, especially if you've got a singer with a lot of dynamics that could, you know, just all of a sudden blast you. So, uh, and then the other thing that's kind of challenging to record is, is an acoustic piano, mainly because an acoustic piano is so complex harmonically. You know, I've tried a lot of different miking techniques, and uh, the one I ended up with, funny enough, is I'll just go stick my head around the piano or right at the edge of the lid until I find the sweet spot of where I think it sounds the best. And then uh, that's where I put the microphones. Um, as if they were my ears, uh, I'll put two microphones the same width apart right where I thought it sounded the best. What a concept, using your ears. So uh, how, how uh, exactly does like, uh, live sound and uh, recording in the studio differ, like the experience? Well, like I said, if something goes wrong in the studio, you can just go home and come back tomorrow. But when you're out on the road, um, if something goes wrong, you got to do something because the show must go on. So there's a little more pressure in that respect. Um, but largely there's a lot of things that translate. I know I brought a lot of studio stuff to the road and I brought a lot of road stuff to the studio. I think obviously in live concerts, you're always dealing with different acoustic environments. And we do everything from a small club to playing in a church to playing um, in a huge concert hall to outdoors concerts you know so constantly having to uh, having to adapt to the environment um, and also having to use different equipment every place we go because these days we don't really carry a lot of equipment with us so it's it's all pretty much um, whatever they happen to have within reason I mean there's certain boundaries that that we require, you know, like I need a 24-channel board in order to mix the yellow jackets. So it's just constantly adapting, but there's nothing more thrilling than being in the middle of a thousand people mixing a really good show. Is uh, you know, a certain gratification that maybe even exceeds what happens in the studio. I mean, granted, we have great performances in the studio too, but... It's just different. It's a lot more controlled in the studio. and uh, But I like them both.
So has music always been your main passion, or have you had other interests as well? Well, I, I would say that music has always been my passion, starting with uh, piano lessons from the age of four, although I probably wasn't passionate about it growing up. Uh, would have rather been out playing baseball than taking piano lessons. But then uh, looking back, I feel very grateful that my mom, who also was a piano player, um, and my parents were always very involved in the community theater, and my sister and I kind of grew up in that. And then when, uh, when I turned about 11 or 12, uh, I saw Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan Show and decided, I want to do that. So I asked for a guitar, and on my next birthday, a guitar showed up. And then I proceeded to uh, teach myself how to play it, which was a fairly easy transition with all the uh, piano lessons and knowledge of music um, from that. And then I ended up uh, giving guitar lessons all through high school and uh, also got in my first band in high school. That was the beginning of being in several bands uh, on through college. And uh, eventually ending up in the music business as a sound engineer and producer. So yeah, music uh, definitely became my life to the point where uh, I decided I wanted to try to make a living at it which uh, I seem to have managed to do. I think I might just have a career here, after all. There's nothing better than being able to make a living at something that you love, and I feel very fortunate for that. So do you have any advice for young people that are interested in being a part of the music industry today? Well, obviously there's a lot of different jobs in the music industry, from being the musician, the artist, to a multitude of jobs that are behind the scenes, like what I ended up doing. And I would say a good thing to do would be to, to figure out who the people are that are successful at what you want to do, and to reach out to them. I think most people that have achieved a certain level of success would be very willing to, uh, to give back and to uh, keep the tradition alive. A big part of getting in the music business is networking and being in the right place at the right time. Okay, that concludes this episode of BSing with Sean K. Jeff, it was great to have you on. Oh, it was my pleasure, Sean, and uh, thanks for having me on your show, and uh, good luck to you. And uh, yeah, I'll be doing more interviews soon, so stay tuned.